So I want to speak on prayer. If you have your hand out, what's been the greatest answer to prayer you've seen so far? You can fill in that blank. Uh, the next question, how long ago was this? How long ago has it been since you've had a great answer to prayer? Why does God answer prayer? He tells us this in John 14. If you're here in John 14, let's look at verse 13. The Bible says, Jesus speaking, Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. The number one reason that God answers prayer is so that He gets credit, so that He gets the glory. In fact, you won't read through the Bible, that's a big deal to God. When we take credit for what God is doing, God gets pretty upset about that. God wants us to glorify Him, and He wants all of us to point to Him. And when you have a true answer to prayer, you know you weren't lucky, you know it just didn't happen that way, you know God did it, and when you know that, you'll always give God the credit. You'll just be like, wow! God, that was amazing! And, you, and you'll tell other people, I have an amazing God! I pray, there's no way this just worked out. This, I'm not lucky. I mean, God answered prayer. I prayed for this, and this happened. That's the number one reason God answers prayer. The second reason is in chapter 16. Just go over to John 16, verse 24. Jesus again speaking, Until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you receive that your joy may be full. The second reason God answers prayer is so that your joy is full. Again, automatically happens. I'm not going to embarrass anyone. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. But I hope if you've been saved a while, there's a lot of you in the room who could raise your hand and say, I've had an answer to prayer. I prayed for something specifically. It was not, no way it was lucky. There's no way, I mean, I'm just telling you, I, I needed God to answer my prayer. I prayed for it. You heard Doc O saying, how in the world can the surgeon call you and say, hey, come on down, I want to do a surgery. That's answer prayer, right? And Doc O is begging God for that. And whenever you hear him talk about it, he gives God the credit. But man, does his joy in his back make him happy, right? And he's like, man, that was a huge answer to prayer. God gets the credit. My joy is full. Automatically happens when it's a true answer to prayer. So then does God answer prayer? Theologically, we know the answer to that, right? If you know your Bibles at all, does God answer prayer? Four of us know that, okay. (laughs) Yes, God answers prayer. The question I want to ask tonight is, does God answer your prayer? There's a lot of people who say, I believe God answers prayer, but he, he doesn't answer my prayer like he answers Pastor Dennis's prayer. All right, I believe God answers prayer, but he doesn't answer prayer like he answers Doc O's prayer. And I want to cover tonight the eight hindrances to answered prayer. There's eight things in the Bible. I believe it's a comprehensive list. That if you are praying and you're not seeing great answers to prayer, are these eight things hindering it? These are eight hindrances to prayer. I, th- I believe it's a comprehensive list. We're going to go through it really quickly tonight. And before we do, let's open in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this family camp. I thank you for this church. God, just even in the few hours we've been here, what a wonderful spirit is here in this church. God, truly, this is a group of people who, I just have to believe if an unbeliever walked onto this camp, they would know that they are my disciples by the love they have one for another. God, that's been so evident to Joan and I in just the short time we're here. God, thank you for a group of people who, Love you, love each other, and love to have fun. And God, just pray you bless our time in your word this evening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I was an assistant pastor in Chicago, and uh, when you're an assistant pastor, you really want to preach, and I only got to preach when the senior pastor was sick. And the senior pastor was really healthy, you know what I mean? It was kind of a bummer. And uh, But one day he said, Jim, you can preach a Wednesday night series. And I'm like, what? A Wednesday night series? I said, on what? He says, you can pick. And for whatever reason, I picked the topic of prayer. And I was preaching through this area of prayer and I came to the last two messages, which I did in two sermons. Some of you are already getting nervous. We'll do it in one tonight. I'm, I did four and four. I did the first four hindrances to answer prayer, my last message on the last series covering the last half. I went away to a pastor's conference up in Schaumburg and he said, you know, we need to look at our church the way first-time visitors do. We get used to our junk. We get used to the way things look. And we got to think about how a first-time visitor would see our property. And we were in a white-collar area of Chicago, Bolingbrook, and uh, the church owned 20 acres, and so there was the church gravel driveway, the only gravel driveway in our town, and then a split rail fence, another gravel driveway to a 100-year-old farmhouse with all the paint peeling off of it, huge dead tree out front. It looked like a haunted house. And of course, if you know anything about where the assistant pastor lives, that was our parsonage, right? So that's where we got to live. It was really awesome. Uh, we came in one day, and bees were inside the house. We had so much honey in there, they'd come actually in through the house. Anyway, never mind. It was a crazy house. On the right hand, that would be okay, but on the right hand side of us was the richest, wealthiest part of Bolingbrook. 
I mean, the mansion, sprinklers pop up in the morning, everything awesome. R20 acres, left-hand side medical center, everything immaculate, which made R20 acres look even worse. We look terrible. And I came home that day from that meeting and I thought, man, this is terrible. We're a terrible reflection. We're telling God how great we are. This place looks terrible. I went to bed that night and I said, God, please help us make our place look better. As the college and career pastor, the next day, three college guys said, hey, Pastor Jim, what are you doing today? And I said, I know. I said, hey, let's cut down that big tree in front of your house. I'm like, awesome, let's do it. So they came over. I didn't know DACO at the time like I do now. I could have used all those lessons we got today. So we had a tractor. We tied it up to a tractor. We're cutting it down. It can't fall in the farmhouse. We got to fall the right way. Huge, huge tree, much bigger than what we cut down today. And it took us all day to cut it all up, haul it all out of there. But just getting that dead tree out of there with the bark peeling off of it, it made it look better. I'm like, wow, God, I prayed one day. And these guys came over and helped. That was awesome. But we still look really terrible. We had no landscaping, by the way. Saturday night, pray the same thing. Sunday night, pray the same thing. Monday morning, I always go meet with the pastor, had my meeting, came back to my office. And remember answering machines? Some of you are my age and older. And if someone left a machine, there'd be a red light blinking. That means someone left a message. So I hit the button. This lady goes, hi, from the local greenhouse. I'd like to donate some shrubs to your church. Could you call me? I'm like, that is crazy. So I went over to get the pastor. He left. He never left Monday morning. If you know my wife and I, she loves gardening. She has the green thumb. And so I go to get my wife, and she'd gone shopping that morning. That, that never happens. It was like God saying, Jim, you prayed for this. You go down there. So I went down there, and I, I'm telling you the honest truth. Hopefully every time a preacher speaks, it's the honest truth. But this is the honest truth. <laughs> well, not in some churches, but in this one. <laughs> and so... I get out of my, I had a little pickup truck. I get out of this pickup truck. This lady is not a believer. I've never met her before in my life. She's never attended our church ever. I'm meeting her for the very first time. And I hop out of my truck. She comes up to me and says, I, I don't know how to tell you this. I, I feel kind of awkward telling you this, but I, I felt like for three days, I need to give your church some shrubs. And I honestly got up this morning and I felt so strong. I just thought God might kill me if I didn't call you today. I said, well, ma'am, I didn't want anyone to die, but I've been praying for three days that our place would look better. And she said, well, what do you want? In front of her entire greenhouse. I said, ma'am, I, I don't know. I said, I mean, we have no landscaping. We have a 100 feet weed bed between the gravel road and the church. I mean, our place looks pretty terrible. She says, I know. I drive by it every day. <laughs> she said, I'll help you out. She took a pad of paper and started tagging $100 shrubs. Thousands of dollars of shrubs. You know those really long flatbed trailers, the really long ones at the end where it tilts down like that? Filled that with shrubs. Came to an area that as big as this, and she said, would you guys like a hedgerow anywhere? And I said, well, we thought about a hedgerow between us and the medical center. She said, great, you can have all of that. And she said, in fact, I'll have my guys deliver it. So they deliver all of this to the church. Pastor comes up, he sees all of the shrubs over here, and he says, who gave it? I said, Pastor, that's the leftovers. Look what they meant to give us. I said, Jim, that's incredible. He says, and this is Monday. My last sermon's coming on Wednesday. I'm going to cover the last four. He says, Jim, we got to plant those tomorrow. So Tuesday, we get out there. It's 100 degrees in Chicago, high humidity, and we've been sitting behind a desk way too long. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> I mean, we are out there digging, and we are just sweating, and it's terrible. And one of the college guys calls up and says, hey, Pastor Jim, what are you doing? I said, we're planting shrubs. Get over here. And he came over. He's planting with us, and his mother came and brought us three shakes from Burger King. Now, keep in mind, this is over 20 years ago. And we sit down to have the, take a break, and I spun that cup around, and the slogan for Burger King was, I love this place. I thought, God, I love this place. I want to see answers to prayer like this the rest of my life. And I, I should back up. Uh, we needed a rotor tiller. Our family had left our church, but I knew they had a rotor tiller. I called them up and said, hey, can I rent your rotor tiller? He says, Pastor Jim, you have to rent it. Come get it. So I get the rotor tiller for free. I tilled up all along the church, everywhere we're going to plant shrubs. Now on day two, Tuesday, we're planting all these. That afternoon, the lady calls my wife. I left her my phone number. And she says, hey, I just come to see how the, they like the shrubs. She said, oh, they love it. The pastors are planting them right now. She says, the pastors are planting them? I'm coming down. She drives up in her little car. We are soaked in sweat. She looks at what we're doing and she says, you know what you need? You need some flowers. She said, could you come out to our farm? I want to donate some flowers to you. And me and my little faith hopped in my little pickup truck. I drove out to their farm. She gave us $302 apiece geraniums. You know what a hanging basket is supposed to look like? You know, a really nice hanging basket where the flowers come up and over. Well, we were dirt poor. We had nothing. And my, we had a, a big veranda on this old farmhouse, and my wife loves gardening. So she'd gone to Walmart, bought a basket, put it with dirt. We had flowers that stuck up that high. 
And these back then, $60 a piece. She said, would your wife like a hanging basket? I said, I'm sure she would. She said, here, here's two for your wife. Here's two for the senior pastor wife. Went over to Coke machine, hit out six Cokes. Here, take these Cokes back. Her son walks out. Again, non-believers, never met before in my life. I said, sir, I just got to tell you, this is the greatest answer to prayer I've ever seen. And I'm, I'm doing a series on prayer. And I have one more message. I can't wait to preach it on Wednesday night. And he looked at me and said, well, do you have any tree bark for that stuff? I said, no. He says, well, you see that pallet over there? I said, yeah. He said, take the whole pallet. So I had to make multiple trips, get all the flowers over. We call all of Joan's friends. They come over on Wednesday, plant all of those flowers. We put in all that tree bark. I mean, our place is transformed. From Monday to Wednesday night, and people walk in, and I'm preaching on prayer on Wednesday night. I share this story that I just shared with you. I covered the last four. My last sermon, last series on prayer. And I had an invitation. Didn't normally have an invitation on Wednesday. I had an invitation. The whole church came forward. We had four stairs like this and no escape route out the back. <laughs> and so everybody, the whole church, senior pastor, senior pastors kneeling on. I mean, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen. And I'm like 28 years old. I don't have a clue. And I got emotional. I said, if I want to play church, I'll stay home and do it with my kids. But when I come to church on Sunday, we're talking to the God who can do anything. And I believe prayer changes things. And I believe this is an amazing answer to prayer. I want God to get the glory, but man, is my joy full. And I closed in prayer. Church dismissed. They sat there staring at me. I stood there staring at them. It got awkward. I mean, I'm telling you, in all my preaching years, I felt the presence of the Lord that night. And so did everyone in the audience. You know what it's like when church is dismissed. They kept staring at me. I kept staring at them. I finally got so awkward. Minutes. Not one word. You could hear a pin drop. I don't know what to do. I came down the stairs. I walked out the back, stood in the foyer. I'm all alone in the foyer for minutes. The chairman of the deacons comes back in the foyer and says, you need to come back in here and give us part two. I said, I don't know what part two is. But I stand before you tonight as I wish I could say I've followed these eight things all of the, all of the days of my life since then. That would not be true. But I do stand before you saying that when these eight things have been right in my life, I've seen God do amazing things. And I give God all the credit. In fact, my dad, every time I tell him about something great that happens at faith, my dad always says, Jim, don't forget God did that. I'm like, that's true, Dad. Thanks for the reminder. But I do believe if prayer doesn't make a difference, why does God tell us to pray? I'm convinced tonight prayer makes a difference. I hope you believe tonight prayer makes a difference. But maybe you're frustrated. Maybe you've prayed and nothing happened. Maybe you gave up because you had a bad experience and you really wanted something. You really prayed for it. It never happened. So you quit praying. Or maybe how you pray. And we're going to talk about this all really quickly tonight because I'm not going to keep you super long. Well, I might, but it's not my intention. But I want to go through how do you, how do you deal with these eight hindrances to prayer? So number one. We'll see if we can advance this here. Number one, we don't pray. James 4, 2. We have not because why? We ask not. A prayer is your spiritual life as what air is to your physical life. And many of us are dying for lack of breath. What if this would prove the true diagnosis of the ills and disabilities of the church and the Christian today? We will never pray as we should until we see it as a necessity indispensable to the life we've undertaken to live. I moved from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada in August. Well, you know, when you move to Iowa in August, you know how tall the corn is. And I think I'd driven through Iowa twice in my lifetime before I came to be the president of faith. And I got here overwhelming, all these meetings, lots of crabby people. <laughs> and, uh, you know, everyone was like, you didn't go to faith, you don't have a doctorate, how come you're the president? That's why P. P. Tilly came, because President Tillotson's a mouthful. I didn't have a doctorate at the time. My son's in the dorm. He says, Dad, you know what they're calling you in the dorm? I'm like, what? They all call you P. Tilly. I said, I can live with that. That's fine. <laughs> and I had a meeting in southern Minnesota. I-35 up, I-94 across, have my meeting. I come back. I was always on the phone making phone calls. I thought I had turned at I-35 south. In actuality, I had not. When you're out in the Canadian Rockies, you know where you are because the mountains are on the right. And you can always see the mountains. You're in a sea of corn. You don't have a clue where you are. I was doing great till I saw a sign that said Sioux Falls, South Dakota, 30 miles. 
That means I had not turned south on I-35. I had driven I-94 all the way across the state of Minnesota. You know when you see a sign like that, you think the sign is wrong. You know what I'm talking about? I took the first exit and I stopped in. Where am I? You're almost in South Dakota. I called my wife, honey, I will not be home for supper tonight. Why not? I'm in South Dakota. And some of you are wondering, how come he's a college president? But I'm telling you, you went to a farmer in Iowa and said, you got to plant a field that big without a tractor. You know what a farmer in Iowa is going to say? That's impossible. You'd kill mules trying to plant fields that big without a tractor. You know what you and I should say about our Christian life without prayer? What we should say is, that's impossible. I can't live the Christian life without prayer. But do you know how many people do? And James says, you have not... Because you ask now, it's a pretty big hindrance to prayer if you're not praying. Were we able to take into account our losses in the realm of spiritual things as we're able to do things financial and material, we'd undoubtedly be surprised and shocked to discover what tremendous losses we're suffering. Losses traceable solely and directly to a lack of prayer. I don't want to get to heaven and find out what could have happened had I just prayed. We have not because we ask it. Number two, unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Go over to Isaiah 59. Again, if I go too fast, don't get frustrated. Uh, just stay with me. Isaiah 59, verse 1 and 2. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor is your heavy that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you so that He will not hear. God can hear you tonight. And God loves to answer prayer. He tells us that all through the Bible. But the reason some of us are not having answers to prayer is we have sin in our life that we're not dealing with. It's not the fact of sin. We're all sinners tonight. It's a sin that you won't repent of. You, if you're struggling with pornography, you're not going to have a prayer life. You know it's wrong, but you won't repent of it. God says, I, I'm not listening to you. Why? Your iniquities are separating us. If you went to Psalm 66:18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me, the Bible says in Psalms. And I would just challenge you, if you have sin in your life, regardless of what the sin is, anger, bitterness, laziness, not reading your Bible, not being a good husband, not being a good wife, whatever is going on in your life and you refuse to work on it, God says, then I'm not, I'm not answering your prayer. Many a good prayer cannot be answered by a holy God because of sin in the heart and the life of one who prays. In our church, everyone called my wife Mrs. T. I love the drink sweet tea. It's my favorite drink. And so, and that's my favorite woman, so I nicknamed her Sweet Tea. And can you imagine if Sweet Tea and I had an argument? And this hasn't happened, but I mean, we've had arguments. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we've had arguments. In 30 plus years of marriage, I've never sworn at her. And my parents got saved when I was five, grew up in a Christian home. And so thankfully, only by God's grace, I can say not one time I've ever sworn at my wife. But could you imagine? I got up cranky in the morning, yelled at her, screamed at her, swore at her, walked out of the door, slammed the door, went off to work. Work all day, come home, walk in the door. Hey, sweet tea, how you doing? Now, you don't know sweet tea very well, but she would not be, don't sweet tea me. <laughs> I don't want to hear anything out of your mouth till you tell me you're sorry for what happened this morning. Can we relate? And this is like us having a big fight and coming to God and saying, hey, I don't want to talk about my sin, but God, I need you to answer all this stuff. And God says, time out. Until you repent of your sin, I'm not listening to you. And this is what he says in Isaiah. It's not that I can't hear. It's not that I couldn't answer that prayer, but I'm not listening to you till you make that right. And by the way, God knows if you mean it or not. You can't scam God. So you've got to be really repentant when you talk to God and say, God, I'm sorry. You may do it again, but your heart at that moment has to be, God, I don't want to do it again. I'm sorry. Number two, what hinders prayer? Unconfessed, unrepentant sin. Number three, not in the Word. Look in Proverbs 28. Fascinating verse of Scripture. Proverbs 28, verse 9. The Bible says, One who turns away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer is an abomination. That word abomination is God's strongest word of hate. Here's what I hear a lot of people tell me. Pastor Jim or Dr. Jim, I don't read my Bible, but I pray all the time. Like they think that's a really good thing. 
You know what's wrong with that? The wrong person's doing all the talking. You don't read your Bible, but you pray all the time. You think the God of the universe thinks that's good? (laughs) No, God actually says, no, that's bad. (laughs) Because you're not listening. And God says here, if you turn your ear away from hearing the law, your prayer is an abomination. If Sunday morning church is the best sleep you get, by the way, I worked with a lot of guys who work hard construction. We uh, Was it Jason, the c- contract owner? I don't know if he's in the room tonight, but he was climbing a tree, throwing the... You know, if you work hard and that you have a physical job and you come in on Wednesday night and you sit down and it's warm, man, if guys fell asleep on Wednesday night, I gave them tons of grace. I didn't care. I said, just keep your mouth closed, right? Don't be back there. <laughs> That's super distracting, all right? <laughs> you keep your mouth closed, we're all good. I don't care. But I did care on Sunday morning. So you better go to bed early enough to stay awake on Sunday morning. You know when people stay up late watching movies, doing whatever, and then they come to church and they can't stay awake, they can't pay attention because they were staying up way too late Saturday night? This is what God's talking about. He's also talking about when you know that the Word of God spoke to your heart. I mean, you hear Pastor Dennis preaching, but you know the Holy Spirit's taking that and pointing at you. And you know it. I mean, you don't, you're not questioning. You're like, oh my word, that is me. Like, that, did he read my mail this week? How in the world does he know? And when you walk out of that service refusing to repent, refusing to change, this is what got, you turned your ear away from hearing the law. And there's a lot of Christians who every Sunday are stirred, but they're not changed. A lot of Christians walk out on Sunday, good sermon, preacher, good sermon. And every time I hear that, I'm like, well, what do you like the best about it? Uh, (laughs) Let me challenge you. If you hear God's word speak, you need to respond. And God says, if you turn your ear away from the law, you heard the word of God, you knew it was speaking to you, and you said, I'm not doing it. God says, your prayer is an abomination. God hates that prayer. If you haven't read your Bible daily, you're turning your ear away from the law. What advantage is that over people who can't read? You know, people are dying in Afghanistan for their faith. And we have all this incredible freedom. Most of you have multiple copies of God's Word. Do you read it every day? If you don't read your Bible every day, you're turning your ear away from the law. And God says, your prayer is an abomination to me. I didn't put this in the Bible last night. That's what he says in verse 9. You turn away your ear from hearing the law. You have opportunity to read God's Word every day and you don't do it. By the way, there's so many ways to do devotions. There's so many aids in devotions. Devotions is not meant to be a legalistic checklist. But do you regularly feed on God's Word? Do you regularly soak in God's Word? If you're turning your ear away, your prayer is an abomination. Number four, wrong motives. Go over to James chapter 4, verse 3. James chapter 4, verse 3. He says, You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Sometimes God doesn't answer your prayer because your prayer is all about you, not about Him. When I was a kid, I asked for a horse. I grew up on a farm. I asked for a horse, never got a horse. Now until I'm a dad, I understand why. Horses only cost you money, right? And so I didn't get that. And now as a president, I asked for horsepower, right? Give me a Ford Mustang. I can get to meetings really fast. The board has not heard my prayer. (laughs) But that's all about me. Why do you want a job? Why do you want to get married? Why do you want children? Why do you want the job? Why do you want the house? If it's just about you, God says you're asking amiss. When you say, God, give me a house so I can have unsaved people in it. God, give me a vehicle so I can get to church and so that I can bring my family to church. God, give me a job so that I can give to others. Now you're talking God's language. But God says, if your whole life is all about you, God says, I'm not answering those prayers. Which is why I understood why I never got a horse. Number five, failure to forgive others. Go over to Mark chapter 11, verse 25. I want to spend a little bit of time on this one and the next one. Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Jesus speaking and says, And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, that your Father in heaven may also forgive you your trespasses. But if you do not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. Bitterness is harbored hurt. All of us are going to get hurt in life. And when you get hurt, if you won't forgive, the Bible says, God says your prayers are hindered. And he tells a story, Matthew 18. In fact, let's just go over there, Matthew chapter 18. 
Peter comes in verse 21. Peter came and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Peter thinks he's being really generous. If someone does the same thing against me, they hurt me seven times. How many of you would say, well, just pick me. How many, I've been saved 30 plus years. How many of you think since I've been saved in the last 30 years that I've sinned against God more than seven times? How many of you think that? Raise your hand. Okay, you all hurt my feelings, but it is true, all right? I've, I've sinned way more than seven times. And Jesus' response is not seven times, but 70 times, seven, 490 times. How many of you think that God's point there was for you to keep track? Been married over 30 years. I'm glad my wife didn't come to me 10 years in and go, hey, by the way, you're at 450. <laughs> 30 more times and I'm not forgiving you anymore. No, the point is after you do it that much, it's a habit. You'd be in the habit of forgiving. And then he tells this wonderful story. A guy that owed eight countries worth of debt. No way he could pay it back. And he goes to the king. And it says in verse 26, Servant therefore fell down and before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay the, you all. Eight countries worth of debt. This guy can never pay that back. And the king says, I forgive you. And he goes out and he finds a guy that owes him about 400 bucks. And it says in verse 29, But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, about 400 bucks. He laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So the fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. Where have I heard that before? <laughs> oh, yeah, I just said that. <laughs> I mean, should, something should have got off in his little brain. They're like, Man, I've heard that before. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was me owing eight countries worth of debt. And this guy says, I owe you 400 bucks. He says, He throws him in prison. And the news comes back to the king and goes, you know that guy you forgave eight countries worth of debt? He just chucked a guy in prison for 400 bucks. And the king says, bring that guy back in here. And he brings him and he says, listen, I am sure I did not hear this story right. I, I just heard the craziest story. I just heard that I forgave you eight countries worth of debt and you just chucked a guy in jail for 400 bucks. Like, there's no way that's really true, is it? The guy says, yeah, it is. In verse 34, and his master was angry and delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due him. That's the rest of his life. He can't pay eight countries worth of debt. Is there anyone in this room that can pay for all the sin you've ever done and all the sin you'll ever do? It's an insurmountable sum tonight, folks. You, in a whole lifetime of good works, could never pay for all the sin you've done. But Jesus Christ did. And he took all your sin on the cross and he buried it in the depths of the sea. And when that was written in scripture, there was no submarines. (laughs) When it's buried in the depths of the sea in Bible times, it's lost forever. And if you're a believer, if you're a Christian tonight, every sin you've ever done, every sin you'll ever do is buried in the depths of the sea. You'll never answer for it. And God says, if I can forgive you eight countries worth of debt, then you need to forgive each other. And some of you are carrying... Grudges against a spouse. Some of you are carrying grudges against fellow church members. Some of you are carrying grudges against coworkers. And God says, if I can forgive you eight countries worth of debt, you need to forgive each other. And God says, if you stand and you won't forgive, if you come to church and you're so angry on the inside, you say, I will refuse to forgive my spouse. I refuse to forgive my family. God says, then I can't forgive you and your prayers are hindered. You know what's terrible about bitterness is you really don't like that person. But if you don't forgive them, they mess you up in your prayer life the rest of your life. If you think that through, hopefully you could turn that around and say, man, they've already hurt me enough. I'm not going to let them hurt me in my prayer life the rest of my life. Bitterness is a sneaky sin. The Bible says in Hebrews 12, beware of bitterness that's bringing up trouble you and many get defiled. If you're not, you may be bitter at someone at work, but it's going to affect the closest people to you. And and they're like, why are you so upset with me? I'm not upset with you, but because you're bitter over here, it's affecting people. And I would just challenge you. uh, Daco and I played hockey together. I grew up in northern Minnesota. You have to play hockey. And if you know the game of hockey, I'll just stand up here. Those of you that know the game of hockey, you wear hockey pads. Every good hockey player knows where the pads are and where they're not, right? So if you're a hockey player, you have shin pads that cover you here. You wear pants that cover you down to here. Pants pretty much have pads front and back. Wear a chest protector, elbow pads, shoulder pads. So where is a dirty player going to whack you? 
right back here, right? Right above the skates, because pretty much your skates are okay, but a dirty player is going to keep hitting you back here. If you know anything about the game of hockey, there's a thing called a check. You know what a check is? It means I'm going to hit you as hard as I can. There's another thing called drop the gloves. You know what drop the gloves is? I've had enough, and it's time to educate you. <laughs> and we're going to drop the gloves. We're going to do education, and then someone's going in the sin bin for a while, right? And you know what? And so you get in there. And, and when someone's been doing that to you all game long, if you know anything about hockey, a power play means the other team has one more player than you do. The goal of hockey is not to sit in the sin bin. The goal of hockey is to score goals. And as Daco would say, shoot the puck and let the heathen rage, all right? Just keep shooting the puck. And when that guy's been cheap, taking cheap shots and he's coming at you, there's another thing in hockey. If someone's coming at you and they're trying to smash you on the boards and you see them coming at a full speed, if you see it coming, you can get lower than them. And if you get low enough, you can flip them right over your back. And when you see them coming, there's something inside of you that says, oh, bring it on. <laughs> I have waited all game for this wonderful opportunity. You know what your coach wants you to do? This. He wants that guy to smash against the boards and now you have an advantage going the other way. You know what bitter people do? They go low. They want to flip that guy right over. They love the imprecatory psalms, right? Lord, smite him. I got a kidney stone for the first time this year. That is my new imprecatory prayer. (laughs) God, give my enemies a kidney stone. (laughs) But let me challenge you. Some of you are carrying bitterness. You came into this weekend and you're carrying bitterness. You're carrying hurt. And God says it's time to forgive. Sorry to keep using all the winter illustrations and sorry to keep going up and down the stairs, but I'm glad I hit my phone. It counts for all my steps today. But uh, <laughs> if you know anything about downhill skiing, uh, I love to downhill ski. I have three kids, taught them all to downhill ski. My oldest daughter broke my heart and switched to snowboarding. That's a terrible, terrible crime. But every good dad has to bury your kid in snow at some point when you're skiing. And so if you've ever been in the mountains, like I, I grew up in northern Minnesota. We didn't have big mountains, but we had skiing. But you get out to the Canadian Rockies. I mean, that is awesome. And there's a thing called slalom. You know what slalom is? You have to go back and forth. Because if you go straight down, you're going to be doing Mach 3. Unless you want to. My daughter had skied down ahead of me. And you have to ski down and you get in a line to get on the chairlift. She skied down ahead of me, stood in line. I saw that from the top of the hill and something snapped in my dad brain. I thought, this is the moment I've waited for. I'm going to go down and bury her in snow. Because you've come down at Mach 3 and you go sideways like this, you will shoot a fantail of snow. And I thought, this is my chance. So I came down screaming. I mean, I went in the tuck position. I wanted to go as fast as I could. I'm Little tears are just streaming out of my eyes like this. And the whole time, I'm like, this is awesome. And she has no clue. She's watching the people in front of her. I'm coming down at Mach 3. I go sideways. I'm, I mean, I'm shooting snow from here to the back of the building. And Dad! I'm like, this is so great. And I realized I'm going so fast, sideways, I'm going to kill my oldest daughter. And I had two choices, kill her or go in the woods. I went in the woods, I broke my wrist, and I was in Montana. I came out of the woods because I knew I was an idiot, and I kept skiing, didn't say anything to my kids. You ever break a bone? You know it. I got into our bedroom that night, I'm like, oh my word, this hurts! And Joan said, why don't we go to the hospital? No, I'm not paying American prices for that. Well, why don't we go back to Canada? No, I'm not going to ruin our vacation because I was an idiot. So for three days, I toughed it out. And you know what it's like when you're on vacation with the kids, right? You get up in the morning, hey, Dad, let's go do this. Oh, yeah, let's go do that. That'd be fun. Get back in the room that night. Oh, my word, this hurts. We crossed back into Canada. We did not go home first. We went immediately to the emergency room. They x-rayed my arm. The doc came down and says, hey, you broke your wrist. I'm like, no kidding, doc. I know that. He says, well, we're going to cast it. This is a true statement. When they cast it, and it heals. It's stronger in that spot than it was before. I could show you a little tiny scar I have here. It doesn't bother me. Weather change doesn't bother me. It reminds me of a day I was an idiot. But I want to challenge you tonight. There's a big difference between a wound and a scar. Until this healed for three days, it hurt like fire. But once it healed, it's a scar. I remember it doesn't hurt anymore. You know how you can tell whether you've forgiven or not? Does it hurt like fire tonight? Or can you remember it without hurting? If it hurts like fire tonight, you haven't forgiven yet. But when you forgive, it'll be a scar. You'll remember it, but it doesn't hurt.
And some of you need to forgive. I mean, some of you men, why does he say to husbands, husbands, love your wife and be not bitter against them? You know, there's no verse like that to, to wives. Some of you guys can't remember where you put your car keys, but you remember something your wife did eight years ago. That's dumb. Husband, love your wife and be not bitter against them. Maybe you need to forgive tonight. And you'll know you're forgiven when you can remember and it doesn't hurt. But if it hurts like fire tonight, you haven't forgiven yet and your prayer life is hindered. And God would come to all of us tonight and say, hey, if you need to forgive someone, do it tonight. Lord, how many times are you going to have to go to God and ask for his forgiveness? And God says, I'll forgive you every sin you've ever done, every sin you ever do, but you need to forgive each other. And we're just as crazy to say, God, I want your forgiveness for every sin, but I'm not forgiving the person I go to church with. I'm not forgiving my spouse. I'm not forgiving that jerk coworker. You know, they may never change, but it's amazing when you forgive, God changes you. I was preaching through the book of Hebrews and I had a guy who hated me and came to church every Sunday, sat on this side and gave me the look of love every Sunday. And it was so weird, right? Because I'm the pastor. I have to be there. (laughs) You have options. (laughs) And it was like an Olympic sport for this guy. He just came and hated on me every Sunday. And if I would look his way, I mean, he's just glaring daggers at me and then it would disrupt my thinking. I, I got to the point, I didn't even look over that side of the building. I'm preaching on Hebrews and beware of bitterness and God brings it to my mind. And I had told my wife, I, I won't knowingly get in the pulpit knowingly being a hypocrite. I, I'm, a, I'm a sinner like you are tonight. I just things I have to work on, but I won't get in the pulpit saying I refuse to work on what I'm going to speak on. Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night at my kitchen table. And I'm like, God, I cannot forgive him because he'd done some things that hurt our family as well. And I finally broke, and I didn't break nice. I was like, all right, God, I'll forgive him. And then as it settled in, I was like, okay, God, I'll forgive him. And I went into the pulpit the next Sunday. He sat in the same spot, gave me the same look of love. But you know what? I was totally different. I was fine. Why? Because I finally forgive him. You know what? You're going to find that when you forgive others, it changes you. And some of you tonight have been carrying a wound for far too long. It's time tonight to let it be a scar. And it's your choice tonight whether you forgive. Next one, a poor marriage relationship. Go over to 1 Peter 3, verse 7. We're almost done. First Peter chapter 3, verse 7. The Bible says, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. That's as black and white as it can get, right? God says that specifically to husbands, husbands, if you don't dwell with your wife according to knowledge, your prayer life is hindered. A husband is to be an expert on his wife. I have uh, 50 questions if you're bold enough, <laughs> which I recommend it. Send me an email, tiltsonjfaith.edu. I'll send you 50 questions to ask your wife. Most men don't get 15 out of 50, and there's easy ones on there. Favorite color, favorite dessert. And usually if you give a woman a year, she knows her man. That's why there's no command. I mean, women know what a guy looks good in. She knows how much sleep he needs. She knows what he likes to eat. She knows her men. But men, we get wrapped up in our work and we don't know our women. And on top of that, their answers change every three years. <laughs> I've had some guys say, oh man, you're kidding me. I'm like, yeah, but how many of you have three-year-old cell phones or 10-year-old laptops? Of course, there's always that guy who has one, right? He's <laughs> preaching one time. He goes, like, I got a 10-year-old cell phone. He has a walkie-talkie. <laughs> Sir, you missed the whole point here. (laughs) It doesn't bother you to keep up with technology. It shouldn't bother you to keep up with your wife, and her answers will change. Do you know your wife today? Can you buy anything for her and she keeps it? (laughs) Or does she have to quietly return it? Wrong size, wrong color. Guys, I didn't put this in the Bible. He says you have to know your wife. Dwell with them with an understanding. Giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Spiritual powerlessness often equals male callousness. Your relationship to God is in relationship to your wife. Dr. McLaughlin said this statement as only he could. God will become as insensitive to a husband's needs uttered in his prayers as the husband is insensitive to the needs of his wife whispered in his ears. The sighs of an injured wife come between God and the husband. Guys, if you went home, just you and your wife, 
and said, Honey, do you know that I love you? What would she say? Would she tear up? Would it get really quiet? Guys, if she can't look you back in the eye and say, Yeah, I know you love me, your prayers are hindered. Guys, when's the last time you were romantic? This is a hard thing to say with my wife sitting here, but there's a time in our marriage I was romantic three times a year. Her birthday, our anniversary, and Valentine's Day. That's not enough. She didn't get married for that. You know why she married me? She wanted a relationship. You know, she doesn't want to have me say a bunch of nice things about her at her funeral. (laughs) She'd like to hear those things from me right now. Guys, when's the last time you wrote a romantic note to your wife? We were dating long distance the year before we got married, and we were before the Internet, so we had to write letters. We saved all those love letters. Sometimes we'll read them and we just start laughing. We didn't know each other very well back then. We know each other so much better now. I was in my office one day and she came in and just quietly put a letter that I'd written her. And I read that love letter that I'd written her and I'm like, that is really good. (laughs) No wonder she married me. (laughs) And she was like, yeah, I haven't had one like that in over a year. Ouch. And true. Guys, if you're not loving your wife and dwelling with them in an understanding way, how are you doing on the honey-do list? You know, I think I, I, I just seeing the bumper stickers as I drove in here, I think I know the crowd here tonight. <laughs> I'm not going to go down anymore on that path, but I think the guys in this room, someone breaks in your house and he's going to kill your wife and kill your kids. I think every guy in this room, it says over my dead body. And guys, that's how it should be. And in my house, I have home court advantage, right? I know where the weapons are in my house. I think probably a lot of you are the same way. Some breaks into my house, they made a terrible decision. And God says that's how it should be. And I think every guy in this room would say, if someone tried to break in and hurt my wife, hurt my kids, I would die for them. But realistically, how often is that going to happen? Maybe never. But every guy in here says, I'll make the ultimate sacrifice that I'll probably never have to make. Sign me up. And then your wife says, hey, can you take the trash out? Right now? The game's are Come on. So isn't that weird, guys? We'll make the ultimate sacrifice we never have to make, and we don't do the daily sacrifices we need to make. Oh, honey, I'd die for you, but the trash, come on. I love sports, and especially the Minnesota Vikings. Your pastor and I share that affinity, and the Iowa Hawkeyes. We're pretty similar on these things. I was first married. My wife would come in and talk to me, and they'd score a touchdown. What would I have to do? Well, i got to see that replay. Right in the middle of whatever she's saying, what did that tell her? If you gave me a blank piece of paper and said, Jim, here's the quiz. Which do you love more, Vikings or Joan? I'd get it right on paper. Joan. But you know what I was doing practically every time that came up? I'm picking the Vikings. When God spoke to my heart about that, I said, okay, when she comes in, I'm going to turn the game off. When she come in, I turn the game off. We talk, she leave, I turn the game back on. You know what happened over time? She stopped coming in when the game was on. Not that she was doing that on purpose. But you know what, guys? Does our wife know that she's first? How are you doing on the honey-do list? The light burns out in the refrigerator and your wife says, hey, honey, the light's out in the refrigerator. Say, hey, no problem, I'll take care of that. And she learns Braille before you put a light bulb in there. You know what I'm talking about? (laughs) She can reach in the dark and find anything. (laughs) And then she says, hey, are you going to change the light bulb? Told you I was going to do it. (laughs) That was three months ago, honey, thanks. Guys, we laugh, but probably if you're like me, it's convicting. And guys, if you have your Bible open... God says if you don't dwell with an understanding wife and you don't give honor to her, your prayers are hindered. Guys, we've got to be good husbands so that we can have a powerful prayer life. And it matters to God. Vain or unthinking repetition, Matthew 6, 7. We're literally almost done. I'll say that five more times before we're actually done. <laughs> Matthew 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think they'll be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them. Your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask of Him. 
Guys, what's your prayer? You know, for a lot of people, prayer is just a hurdle to get to their food. That's their prayer life. Three times a day, God bless this food in my body. What does that even mean to you anymore? Make me fatter? (laughs) You've ever heard Tim Hawkins? Lord, I don't know how you're going to do it. Make up for my bad choices. (laughs) Turn this Cheeto into a carrot stick on the way down. (laughs) Let me challenge you tonight. We're just, you know, what do we get on the Catholics for? The rosary, right? You go to a Catholic, it's how many Our Fathers and Hail Marys, but aren't we the same way? We just pray through the Wednesday night prayer list. Or God bless this food in my body and we're not really thinking anymore. Again, I was skiing in northern Minnesota and, and they make snow in northern Minnesota when they don't have enough. And uh, when I was in high school, if you know anything about the rating system, you know, there's there's green, that's, the, that's really easy. Anybody can do green. Then there's blue, it's intermediate. And there's black diamond, you might get hurt. And then there's double black diamond, you might meet Jesus today. And so when I'm in high school, what do I want to ski? I want double black diamond, right? So I went off a hill that, if you know what a mogul is, it's hills on a hill. And in a mogul, you come down a really steep hill, and then you've got to cut in between each of these, which is fine if you have actual snow, <laughs> because you need snow to cut. I came off the lip, and it was one of those ones that like curved under and then went straight down. And I'm in the lead. I took off and I'm down and I took my first cut. There is not a flake of snow. It had all turned to ice. And so I, I went to cut. I didn't cut. I launched sideways. And I launched, landed. I did it three times on a hill that steep. On the third time, I felt like I was in the Olympics. You know, I'm, looking, I'm so high, people look really small. <laughs> and then I crashed. I mean, parts went everywhere. I just started walking down the hill and my buddy's like, what are you doing? Put your stuff on. And I got my gear on. I ski to the bottom of the hill. Did I wipe out or what? Oh, crazy wipe out. Get to the bottom of the chairlift. Did I wipe out or what? Oh, crazy wipe out. Halfway up the chairlift. Did I wipe out or what? Oh, crazy wipe out. Top of the hill. Did I wipe out or what? Let's go see ski patrol. They took me to ski patrol. I had a second degree concussion. I couldn't remember my age. I couldn't remember anything. You know what happens when you say the same thing over and over and over again? Everyone around you knows something's wrong. But you know what all of us call it? Prayer. (laughs) And God says, vain repetition? I'm not listening. That's what the heathen do. Don't think that I'm going to be, don't think that because you prayed three times a day, but you said the same thing over and over again, your brain wasn't engaged. Don't think God counted that as prayer. God says heathen people do that. God says, no, when you talk to me, engage your head and engage your heart. And again, red print, Jesus is saying this. When you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Next time you pray, think about what you're saying. And then lastly, we must have faith. James should be James, not Isaiah. I don't know what Isaiah 1, 5 to 8 says. We go over to James chapter 1, verse 5 to 8, and we're done. James chapter 1, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Let not that man suppose he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The Bible says in Hebrews 11.6, without faith it is what? Impossible to please God. You have to believe that He is and that He's what? Rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. If you don't believe that tonight, you won't pray. If you're convinced tonight, if you've tried it and you say it doesn't work, then you probably have already stopped praying. Maybe tonight you need to get back to praying. But when you pray, have faith. You're talking to the God of the universe. And I just want to close with this. God doesn't always say yes. If you've prayed long enough, you know that's true. And by the way, have you prayed long enough to look back and say, I'm glad he didn't say yes? God doesn't always say yes, but let me say to every believer tonight, God does not always say no. God does not always say no. And if you're here tonight and say, man, I am not seeing answers to prayer, it's probably because you got one of these eight things wrong. Because God does not always say no. And God loves to hear and answer prayer. And I don't have the time. All the crazy things God's done at faith bring us through. I mean, I could go on and on tonight because that night changed my life. And I heard, I think it was Andrew, said you have 30 guys praying on Wednesday night. I promise you guys, you keep that up and you take care of these things. That's powerful. Don't you want to see what God can do? 
I don't want to see what I can do. I want to see what God can do. And that takes prayer. And you got to get these eight things taken care of because if not, your prayer is hindered. But if you take care of these eight things and you got guys praying and women praying, man, you're going to see some amazing things because God loves to answer prayer. And because why does He answer prayer? If God does an amazing work in your church, what should you be doing? Give God the glory and your joy is full. And when that happens, God says, man, I'm just going to keep pouring it out. Because the more I pour it out on that church, the more they're giving me glory and the more their joy is full. And you'll find that personally as well. Let me close in prayer tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for great attention. It's been a long day. And uh, God, I do pray that you'd help all of us to have a powerful prayer life. God, help us to have a prayer life that makes a difference. And Lord, maybe there's some here tonight who been discouraged about prayer. They just haven't been praying. Maybe there's some who haven't been reading their Bible not going to bed early enough so they can pay attention to church on Sunday or they know what you're speaking to them about but they're refusing to respond. Or maybe there's some who are bitter tonight. They're harboring hurt. And God, it's not that the hurt isn't real. God, if we have nothing to forgive, life would be easy. But because we do get hurt, you tell us as Christians we must forgive. And God, we come tonight so thankful and so grateful that you have forgiven us. God, a debt we could never pay. God, how can we accept that kind of forgiveness and refuse to forgive those around us? God, maybe there's a husband here tonight that you spoke to who just hasn't been as engaged with his wife. He doesn't know her very well. He doesn't, hasn't been as romantic as he could and should be. God, I pray you'd speak to his heart tonight. Maybe there's someone here tonight who just says the same thing over and over again and it's no different than the heathen. Maybe it's a lack of faith. God, whatever it is tonight, if you spoke to our hearts, help us to respond. God, help us not to just be stirred, but if you spoke to us. Because God, if we won't respond, we'll leave the service tonight with our prayers still hindered. Oh God, how we want to see what you can do. I want to see that at faith. I want to see that here in Sheraton. I want to see this in my personal life. I want to see this in the lives of the people here tonight. Because you are worthy of all the glory and all the credit that we could ever give. Lord, like myself, probably all of us tonight have no clue where we would be without you. We owe you a debt that we could never pay off. God, help us to see what you can do in and through us as we seek to honor you through a life of prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.